Good morning, Moraine Valley Church. You all doing well? Thank you, good brother. Well, if you're joining us this morning and you weren't here last week, we actually started a series last week called uh, People of Promise. And uh, as we open up this series, we're gonna understand just what the story of the Bible is. Now, um, the story, Somebody remind me this morning, some people may take that we say story like a fable, uh, like a fiction. This is a non-fiction story. This is real history, past, present, and future, sort of say. And so uh, as we look at the story of the Bible, this is not kind of like some author, God himself, made up some kind of story that isn't real. This is a non-fiction story that is recorded in the Bible. And it's driven by three key words we learned last week. It's driven by the word seed, by the word covenant, and by the person, Jesus. And today we're gonna take a look at the seed. And we're gonna find, it's interesting as we talk about being people of promise, the very first promise in the Bible is connected with the seed. And we're going to see that this morning in Genesis. And we're going to find out that this promise and this uh, verse we're going to look at this morning really drives the story of what God is doing in the world. And we see in this story what God is doing in our lives. So we're not just learning the story of the Bible. We're going to see that what we see in Genesis 3.15 really shapes the world we're living in today all the way down to my personal life and my experience. So I'm excited to share that because we learned last week that the big story of the Bible can be summarized like this. It's God's redemption of man through Jesus. Or if you want to make it smaller, say, I can't remember all that, we're just calling it Paradise Restored. And it's the story of God bringing man back to paradise again. Because we learned last week that when you look at the start of the story and you look at the end of the story, you learn a lot about what's going on. And we look at the start of the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we look at the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, we see a lot of similarities. We see that, first of all, God created the heavens and the earth, in the end of the story, he creates a new heavens and earth. In this part of the story, we see God dwelling with man, and man in harmony with himself and with his others and with the earth. We find in the new story, at the end, that God is dwelling with man, and man is in harmony with God and with others and with the new earth. We see in the new story that man was called to reign over this creation as representatives of God, we'll see in the end of the story that man is called to reign forever and ever over the new creation. And we see in the start of the story that there is no sin in the first two chapters, there's no Satan, there's no curse, and there's no death. And when you come to the end of the book, the end of the story, we see that there's no sin, there's no Satan, there's no curse, there's no death. So we learn a lot about the story of what's going on by looking at the start of the story and the end of the story, and we're seeing that God is restoring paradise once again. But it's what's in between the story 
that we want to focus on this morning to say what drives the story from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 and what's going on. And we're going to find again, this doesn't just drive the Bible story, it drives the world we're living in today, it drives our very lives. So this morning, we're going to look at what is called the curse in Genesis 3. If you haven't gotten there yet, turn to Genesis 3. This is where the fall of man is explained and the curse that took place. And as you know, that man fell out of the deception of Satan. And in Genesis chapter 3, and again, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And obviously, chapter 3, right at the start of that book, we see that Satan, in the form of a snake, he used the snake as an instrument to deceive Eve, and Adam, who was right there with her, ate along with her the tree that God told him not to eat. So the part of the curse we want to look at this morning is in verse 15. This is the curse where God cursed Satan. There was a curse that was put upon the woman, there was a curse put upon the man, and there was a curse put upon Satan. And in verse 14, he tells the snake, the instrument that Satan used, that he's going to spend the rest of his life crawling on his belly and eating dust. But in verse 15, that's what I want to focus on this morning as he continues the curse. And he says this in Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We're going to open up that passage this morning in a way that we can understand it and see how it drives the story. Key word here is enmity. What is enmity? It's hostility. It's not even hostility that's hidden in the corner of the heart. It's open hostility between two people or two groups of people. And so what we see in the curse right from the beginning is that God is going to put hostility between you and the woman. Now, that's between Satan and Eve. Only woman alive at that time. And um, so what we see here, and I think we can understand why there be hostility between Eve and Satan after what he just did and the way that he uh, destroyed their lives by deceiving them and all the consequences that came with sin. But then he says this, and so we're going to see three places where this open hostility takes place. So first of all, between Satan and Eve, second of all, between your Seed, who's your, he's speaking to Satan, between your seed, Satan, and her seed against Eve's seed. So there's going to be a hostility that is open that takes place not only between Satan and Eve, but now between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. We got to take a sidebar here. We gotta understand what in the world is a seed. Uh, we're familiar with it and think of it often in the agricultural world, but we're talking about a seed now in a whole different context. 
The Hebrew word, when you trace it through, and I, I love tracing through these words and seeing what's going on, the, this is every word that is used for this one Greek word for seed, okay? So listen up. These are the words, it's offspring, descendant, origin, family, child, children, son, family line, race, nation, posterity, I'm sorry, posterity, not prosperity, but posterity, people, seminal, intercourse, as well as sowing and grain like you do with seed. So we get a little feel for this. The Greek word for seed is this, sperma. Uh, that's where we get the English word sperm. So we get a little sense. We're talking about something different than the agricultural world now. So bottom line, when he's talking about a seed here, he's talking about a lineage of people from a particular family. A lineage of people, it's a line. You know, I'm, I don't know what generation I am. I never did that generational study of the Peglo line, but from way back, there was somebody who uh, began this line and, and we're all the way down here now to who I am and who my family is today, distinct from other families. So it's a lineage of people. The word is singular. It is, um, you know, grammatically, it's a noun that is singular, but it can be used in a plural sense. And only context will tell you. We just saw that this morning. Didn't we have a worship team up here this morning? Singular word, team, indicates a whole group of people that come together to serve a purpose together. You know, when we talk about the idea of a band, we had a band this morning, we had different people playing different instruments, that's a single word, a band, which indicates a group of people. In the church context, we talk about a board. It's a number of people who come together to serve together. How about the New Testament? The body of Christ, singular, a body. It's singular, it's one body, but it's made up of many parts. And so the only way we can tell if this is being used singular or plural is by context. And you'll see that today over and over again as we look at these passages. They call that the collective noun, for those of you that understand grammar better. A collective noun means that it's, while it's singular, it's speaking of a group of people. And the third thing we need to understand about this word is it can be used physically or spiritually. I'm glad to hear some amens coming out already. Uh, a sign of things to come. And here's, when you think of this spiritually and physically, look at Isaiah 53.10. We'll put this up here for you. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. This is Isaiah 53. They call it the suffering servant. It's the Old Testament prophecy of the fact that Jesus is going to die on the cross, Okay. And we see these amazing words, the Lord was pleased to crush Jesus, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, literal word, 
he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. John 1 tells us what? Whoever believes in Jesus will be born again as children of God. Their source is God. They're children of God. Who is the seed? Who's the posterity? Who's the family line that comes from Jesus? It's those who believe in him. Now their source, their origin is their children of God. They're born again of God. You know that as we read through the New Testament. And so there's a spiritual seed and there's a physical seed. And again, whether it's singular or plural, context tells us. Whether it's spiritual or physical, context tells us. So let's look back at Genesis 3.15 now that we understand a little bit about this word. We're talking about a family line that's going to come, as he says here in verse 15, the second part, and between your seed, Satan, and Eve's seed. Now, obviously, Satan does not have a physical seed. Just as Jesus didn't have a physical seed, Satan doesn't have a physical seed. But we see this over and over again in the Scripture. 1 John 3, 12, speaking of Cain and, uh, and of his murdering of, of his brother Abel, and says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. The word of speaks of origin. It talks about ancestry. It talks about parentage. It talks about where someone comes from. It comes from the source, the origin of something. And he's telling us that Cain was of the evil one. And he slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. How about John 8, 41? Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. You're doing the deeds of your father? Who, who, where's your parentage? Where's your lineage? He's saying that you Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are doing the deeds of their father. And he said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And then he says down a couple of verses later, you are of your father, the devil and you want to do the desires of your father, the very nature of Satan. And he's saying to the, this group of people here that your parentage, your lineage, your seed, you come from the line of Satan. Matthew 13, we see both of these used together, the parable of the tares. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, those are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. The good seed, their origin, their parentage, their father, their lineage is from the kingdom of God. And the tares, the bad seed, are of the lineage, of the line. Their fatherhood is Satan himself. And so in Genesis 3.15, when he's talking here about the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, he's talking about an ungodly line 
in a godly line. Then let's look at the third hostility that he talks about here. First of all, it's between Satan and Eve. Second of all, it's between a godly line that comes from Eve and an ungodly line that, that comes from Satan. And then he says this, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, interesting, he moves the seed to the singular now. He's using it in a plural sense right beforehand, but now he identifies one seed in particular of the woman. I think this is the first reference to the virgin birth because it's a seed of woman. And what he says here is that he, Jesus, shall bruise you on the head and you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. Open hostility between Jesus and Satan. We talk about spiritual warfare. We feel spiritual warfare. We feel the pressure of it in the world around us and in our own lives. This is the source of the spiritual warfare because God said there's gonna be open hostility between Satan and Jesus himself. But here's the good news. Jesus is gonna bruise Satan on the head. He's gonna ultimately crush and destroy him while Satan will bruise him on the heel. That's the first reference to the cross. So you might say in seed form for the first time, we see Jesus, we see the gospel, we see the cross opening up in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, a curse which includes a promise. And this promise of the seed, of this open hostility between Satan and Eve between the godly line and the ungodly line, but ultimately here's the promise, but Jesus, the seed of woman, he's gonna crush Satan ultimately while Satan will bruise his heel. That drives the story of what we know what's going on. That really drives, as we said, we saw in Genesis, one and two in Revelation 21 and 22, paradise. Well, what we look at, we say, man, this certainly doesn't feel like paradise now, and it's not. Because from Genesis three to Revelation 20, we are living the reality of what this curse said and the promised hope of Jesus destroying the devil. So this explains our history. This explains why when we read the scripture, we see so many wars and struggles. This explains why we see open hostility today between the values of the world and the values of Christians. We see that right here in the United States. It explains why we struggle as pawns in the battle between Jesus and Satan that comes down to the point that it even touches our lives. This explains the story. Now, what I want to give, I gave you, did, did you pick up one of these cards on the way in? If you didn't, raise your hand. We, we got some people that'll get them. Put your hands up real high. I believe we have some people who'll be handing these out. So keep your hands up high, and I'll let you get them. Because we're going to trace the line. We're going to see how the Bible traces the line of the ungodly seed as well as the line of the godly seed and how we see this developing. So I'll wait for you to get it because this is important for you to see. We're gonna have it on the screen as well. I'm just not sure how well you'll be able to see it. 
from where you're sitting. And uh, for those who are joining us online, I, I'm going to ask you if you could put that online so they see this card rather than seeing me. Keep your hands up high. If you didn't get it, start to swing your hand because obviously there you go because they missed it first time. Everybody good? You got it? This is a great resource for you. What we're, and I got again, I got to thank Joe Brasfield. Joe always takes my confusing stuff and makes it simple. Thank you, Joel. And uh, he's my iron sharpening iron in this series. But on the front page is the image we saw last week that built our sermon where it shows the storyline of the Bible. Today we're looking on the back side, which I had a real confusing chart where I tried to draw it out. I had arrows and all kinds of cool things that meant a lot to me, but I also looked and said, what in the world's that? Joel simplified it for us. So thank you, Joel, wherever you are, good brother. What we see here traced throughout scripture is the seed, this open hostility that is played out in history that even continues till today. Interesting. I don't want you to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. Um, you see the passage on the card and all these passages you can look at later. But in Galatians 4, 28 says this, and you brethren like Isaac are children of promise. Guess what? We are people of promise. It's right there in the scripture. We're children of promise. But as at that time, back then, he was born according to the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is now also. In other words, you know what? Just like there was open hostility all the way back then between Ishmael and Isaac, today there's still open hostility going on between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. And that hostility will continue to Genesis chapter 20, verse 10, when Jesus finally and ultimately defeats Satan and throws him in the lake of fire, will he be tormented day and night forever and ever. So let's take a look at this. The three columns, the ungodly line, Satan's seed, the godly line, Eve's seed, and then supporting scriptures. We're not going to go through all those this morning. I'll, I'll, I'll show you a couple, but uh, we're going to start from there. We know that uh, Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve, and uh, Cain killed Abel, as we read a few minutes ago, and we saw that he was really of the evil one. When you read about Cain in Genesis 4, you're in Genesis 3, look over to chapter 4. It says in verse 16 this, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. What we see here is a man who stepped out of the presence of the Lord and began, he built his own city, began his own life, began his own family, and they did all of this outside of the presence of the Lord. But look at over at chapter 4, verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, 
And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed to me another seed. Your translation probably says offspring, same exact word we see in Genesis 3.15. God has appointed to me another seed in place of Abel, for, kill, uh, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see these two lines. The line of Cain, we're living a life apart, totally apart from the presence of the Lord. We have the line of Seth, who is calling upon the Lord, living in dependence upon the Lord, and acknowledging his presence. And as you continue to trace down, we see after Abel and Seth, we see Noah came. And by the way, now you understand the importance of the genealogies that we all love to pass over when we're reading the scripture. And I get it, I love to too. But once in a while, it's good to do the study to find out what's going on here. And this is really why the genealogies are there to help us trace the godly line and see where that's going. Because from Seth, came Noah, and from Noah came two sons, Ham and Japheth, and uh, and a third son named Shem. And we know that after the flood, and after God destroyed the whole earth because he grieved the ever-made man because of all the evil that was in the world, every man's heart and thoughts were just evil, God destroyed them gave us the rainbow as a covenant, promised to never destroy the earth by water again. But he had these three children. But we see from Ham and Japheth come the cultures and the lands of the world, and the cultures and the lands of the world as we read it in Genesis 11, the table of nations, almost a genealogy of nations, these become the nations that really began to war and have open hostility against the line of Shem from whom Abraham was born. And who came from Abraham? Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes or the the nations of Israel. And we see that from uh, the line of Ham and Japheth come you know, the cultures of the world, but actually with Isaac, who was born of Abraham as well, he was born of the flesh. That's a whole story of how the flesh and the spirit different is they came together with a plan to help God outdo what he's gonna do. So they came up with a plan. He was born of a fleshly plan. Isaac was born of a promise. They said, how in the world could this ever happen? But God promised and he did a miracle giving a man that was nearly 100 years old and a woman who'd been barren for 90 years, a miraculous child, child born of promise. And then we see that from Ishmael's line came Esau and eventually the Gentiles. uh, And as we saw here, this line that goes from Isaac to Jacob to the 12 tribes, the 12, should, uh, boys, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. And out of those 12 tribes, he narrows it down to Judah. And he says, Judah, from you is going to come a ruler to whom all the rest of your brothers are going to bow down to. And so that's talking about the rest of the Jewish nation bowing down to this one who comes from Judah's line until Shiloh comes. 
In other words, all these rulers are going to come from the line of Judah until Shiloh comes, which means to the one to whom it belongs, to whom will be the obedience of all the world. So now he's not only talking about the obedience that's going to come from the rest of Israel to this one that comes from Judah, but now he says there's going to be one who comes through Judah that eventually is going to be the Messiah, the one who's going to be the king over all the world and all the world's going to obey him. So we see who comes from Judah's line. David. And there's a promise or a covenant that's made to David that there's going to be one who comes from your line, David, who happens to come from Judah's line, who is going to be a king forever, who's going to reign forever over a forever kingdom. And then you start the New Testament and what happens in Matthew 1.1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, showing the lineage that Jesus' line goes back. And he comes from David. And he comes from Judah, and he comes from Abraham, and he's the seed, the ultimate one who has been promised, who's going to come, and it proves genealogically that he is the Christ, he is the one who's come, he is Shiloh, he's the one they've been waiting for, to whom all the nations will give obedience. But we find out later as we continue to trace it in Scripture, in the New Testament, that the believers, we saw it in Isaiah 53, he shall see his descendants, literally the word he shall see is seed. Well, guess what? We as believers now are the seed of Jesus. We are, we are of his lineage. We're born of God as children of God. So I guess I, I want you to see all this for this reason. We're going to see in the covenants the seed clarified to exactly who it is and ultimately that it'll be fulfilled in Jesus. But I want you to understand this. This is, if nothing else comes today, and I'm going to show you this in the scripture here in a second, the story of the Bible is your story. It's my story. The promises that God made to Israel or to Abraham or to David, those are the different recipients of the promises, we'll see someone else here in a second, that those promises don't just belong to them, they belong to us. And so as you're learning the story of the Bible and learning the Old Testament and seeing these promises and covenants that were made with Israel and David and Abraham, you need to understand we are heirs of those promises, we're recipients of those promises, so I'm hoping that we listen to this series with a whole new light and a whole new interest, more than just learning information about the Bible, but we're learning the promises that God made that drive our life, that drive our present history, that drive the history past, and yet even the future yet to come. So let me show you. Turn, we're, we're, we are heirs of the promise for two reasons. The first one's in Romans chapter 4. So turn to Romans chapter 4. This is so important because you're going to see from God's word this morning, this isn't just Pat's idea. This is what the word of God says. And in Romans chapter 4, the, uh, well, starting in verse 9, and we're going to go through verse 18. We're going to see the story where 
we saw that faith was credited to Abraham. Did I say faith? I'm going to say righteousness was credited to Abraham on the basis of faith. And we're going to see how that plays into us today. So starting in verse 9, he says this, Romans chapter 4. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? Let me tell you at this point right now, as we read this passage, the uncircumcised are Gentiles, and I think we learned if I didn't explain it, Gentiles is the whole rest of the world that isn't Jewish. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And so um, we also, another word for Gentiles is the uncircumcised. But the, is this blessing then on the circumcised, that'd be the Jews, or the uncircumcised, also the Gentiles? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Then in verse 10 he says this, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. You see, circumcision did not precede Abram's faith. It followed it. Just like baptism today for the church is the seal or the sign of being related to Jesus Christ. The same way there, back then, he believed God in his uncircumcised state. Even Abraham was saved in that uncircumcised state as he put faith in God. He received the righteousness declared in Genesis 15 that he was declared righteous by God. What does Genesis 17 say? Then he added circumcision as the sign or the seal of it. And so circumcision, just like baptism, did not save somebody. It's faith that saved somebody back then. It's faith that saves somebody today. So he goes on and says this. Again, how, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or, un, or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Why? So that he might be the father of all who believe. The father of all who believe without being circumcised Gentiles, that righteousness might be credited to the Gentiles, and the father of the circumcision, that's the Jews, to those who not only are of the circumcision, those who are of the blood of Abraham, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So the first thing we learn here is that Abraham is the father of all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. All Jews by blood are not automatically children of God. It's only those who have the like faith of Abraham 
They have the blood, but they need to have the faith of Abraham to be saved. Just because they have the blood of Abraham, that's no guarantee of the promises of God. Because that's what he says in the next verse. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendant, the literal word in the Greek sperma, to his seed, that he, singular, would be heir of the world. Now I'm gonna tell you something you maybe never heard before, and I keep on saying to myself, I hope I'm right. I believe he's referring to Jesus right there. He goes to the word he. You're gonna see later on when he speaks of the seed, he's gonna speak about they, plural. But he says, and the, for the promise to Abraham or to his seed, that he, singular, would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there's no law, there also is no violation. So we see here that the promise is on the basis of faith, not on the basis of the law. And this is, I love this, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be accordance with grace. How many people say the Old Testament was based on law, the New Testament was grace? God is a God of grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't get saved by obedience in the Old Testament and faith in the New Testament. Abraham was saved by faith, we're saved by faith. You see the unity going through the whole scripture there. For this reason is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, plural, not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Gentile, that's the Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, we see this in Genesis 17, 4, we'll see this in a couple weeks, two weeks from now, that one of the promises that God made to Abraham, you're just not gonna be the father of this nation, but you're gonna be the father of many nations. And so what we see here in Romans, that the promise is guaranteed to all Jews and Gentiles who come to Jesus in faith, who have the same kind of faith as Abraham. So what we see here, the first reason why we're part of these promises is because we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Well, turn to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to see a second reason. This is so loaded. Uh, whoa, I can't believe I've gone this long already. Galatians 3 verse 14 says this. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now it's interesting, you're, you're gonna hear from us. The Abrahamic covenant was the root of all the covenants. The other covenants further expanded. He says you're getting the blessing of Abraham by receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit was promised in the new covenant. 
And so we see this, how the covenants are meshed together and come together as one, but the Gentiles are blessed with these blessings because of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, when humans make covenants with one another, yet when it has been ratified, nobody can set it aside and nobody can add conditions to it. Once that covenant's ratified, you can't say, well, forget it, we're not gonna do it, and you can't change it, you can't add any conditions to it. Now look at what verse 16 says. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Did you see that? The promises were spoken to Abraham and to Jesus. We saw it in Romans, we see it here. I, I still see, even though I see it, I keep on saying, God, I hope I'm right. I know your word says it. I, I don't hear a lot of other people saying that, but it, it's exactly what it says. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, to Jesus. Uh, jumping down to verse 19, we see this again. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. So now we go down to verse 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God, our source, our lineage, our parentage is of God, the godly line, the godly seed, for you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that means you were immersed into Christ, you've been joined together with Christ, you've been united with Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, there aren't those kind of distinctions, you're one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, if you're here this morning, and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Literal word, sperma. His seed, it's actually singular, but the interpreters, because the context saw, he's speaking about a group now, a collective group of people. And he said, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs, according to promise. You know, guys, this excites me because of this. I said it earlier, this isn't just the story of the Bible. This isn't just the story of the world. This isn't just the story of Israel. This isn't just about the promises and the covenants that God made to Israel, David, and Abraham. Brothers and sisters, we're heirs. We're heirs of the inheritance that God promised to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, we are Abraham's seed. So everything we're gonna learn in weeks to come applies to you and me, not because the church replaces Israel, we'll see this in weeks to come, but because the church is grafted in along with Israel and comes alongside of them and together will be recipients 
of the promises that God made to his people. So guys, I don't know. These things excite me. I hope your heart gets excited because what we're going to see in weeks to come are the promises that God made to you, bound himself by covenant. And covenant means this, that if you break a covenant, you're worthy of death. If God breaks these promises with us, God will be worthy of death. How many think God's gonna break those promises? God's a faithful God, as we sang earlier. He's a God who's full of loving kindness, who loves to keep his promises for his people. So let me close in prayer. So Father, I just pray today as we seek to understand a little bit more of what's happening from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. God, I just pray that you would open our eyes, not just to understand the story, but to see that we're in the story. And to see it's our story. And Father, to see as the Hebrews learned that these promises are like an anchor for our souls. Lord, in the midst of a world that's going crazy, in the midst of our lives that go crazy, God, we got an anchor for our soul that can hold us in place, and they're the promises that you have made and covenanted yourself to. So God, I pray that, I don't know how you do that, but make each one of us secure in your promises. God, give us the ability to understand bigger now what's going on in our world. But Father, help us even more so understand what's going on in our lives and that we are children of promise and we got a great hope ahead of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.